Let's turn then in God's word this evening to the book of Hebrews once again as we consider the rest of that second chapter this evening. We considered this morning those first four verses. So we'll pick it up at verse 5 tonight and read 5 through the rest of the chapter. Let's hear then God's breathed out word to us. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything, in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, from whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For you sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise." And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I invite you to keep your scriptures open. Let's bow again in a time of prayer. Father, once again, we thank you. We thank you for the printed word, and we thank you for the proclaimed word, the preached word. And as we hear it tonight, we pray that we'll lay it on our hearts, that we may go closer to you, that we may understand you better and understand your love for us and our love for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Question and answer 23, we read the following. What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? The answer that is given is this. Christ, as our Redeemer, executes the office of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his state of humiliation and exaltation. And so this evening, as we look at Hebrews chapter 2, I'd invite you to see those three offices in this passage, that Christ is indeed supreme 
as our Savior because he does indeed fulfill all three of those offices. He is our prophet. The order in Hebrews will be he is our prophet, he is our king, and he is our priest. This morning we dealt with, in a sense, with the prophet side. Actually, all of last Lord's Day and this morning. He is a prophet. Of course, he brings the word. That's what the author of Hebrews has been emphasizing. He is the one who brings the word. And therefore, we are to pay attention to the word that Jesus Christ himself has brought. It was interesting, and I don't know how many of you caught it as we were studying uh, Acts this morning with Dr. Tim. But if you go to Acts chapter 3, something I, you know, you read these accounts and uh, you read them over and over and it's one of the blessings of God's word when you stop and study that that you see something you, you never saw before. And maybe it's because of the sermon, most likely because of the sermon. But let me just read these opening verses and see if you catch it as well. Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. What did the man do? He paid attention. Right? There, there's probably all sorts of people walking by. Maybe some have an appearance of being a lot wealthier than Peter and John do. It would have been easy for him to deflect his attention. These guys just want to talk. I, I need alms. Right? But as the author of Hebrews said, we need to pay attention. How much more attention. And what a life-giving, what a life-changing message. When he focuses and pays attention, he hears in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Jesus Christ is our prophet. He is a prophet because not only does he bring the word, not only does he speak the word, not only does he preach the word, but he confirms the word. Here's, he's confirming in Acts chapter 3 his word by a miracle that is performed after he is already in heaven, but it is done in his name. Think of all the miracles that Jesus performed while he was here upon earth, all of which are not just some sideshow. He's not just doing this to, to, for entertainment. It's there to confirm the prophetic word. It's like the seal of truth upon that which he has spoken. And what then becomes the ultimate of that? But his own resurrection. 
the confirmation of the word. His own ascension, the confirmation of his word. Jesus Christ is indeed the prophet. But secondly, as we have dealt with that for a few weeks, he is also the king. And that's what the author of Hebrews is picking up for us in verses 5 through 13. He's picking up that theme that he is the king. How it comes out to us is this. He is over all. Verse 8. He put everything in subjection under his feet. This morning we read as our call to worship from Psalm 8. We sang a couple of hymns as well associated with Psalm 8. Perhaps you thought Psalm 8 was about us. Perhaps you were thinking it, it's about our creation and about man's creation and about how God puts all things under our feet. Really? Does God do that? Is everything under our feet? No. That psalm is a psalm of Christ who is the son of man. The title that he is given throughout the Old Testament as well. It's a psalm about Christ, and, and Paul here, or the author, quote, is quoting in verses 6, 7, and 8 from that psalm, putting everything in subjection under his feet. What does that word subjection mean? It means that all things serve him. It's the idea that he is king, and all things are subject to him. They are his subjects. Not only do all things serve him, but they serve his purpose. That's a word we need tonight. All things serve the purpose of Christ. Think what's going on in your life. Think what's going on in our world. Think what's going on in our country. All things serve Christ. He put all things under him. All things are in subjection to Christ. What a comfort. See, it's not like we look around and we say, where is the rule of Christ? The rule of Christ is everywhere. See, that's the comfort of, of, of knowing God's word. It's the comfort of that truth. We're not looking forward to some day when this is all going to happen. This isn't all somehow in the future. This isn't like a whole bunch of really, really, really bad stuff has to happen. And then Christ will come and then everything will be subject to him. No, this is now. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. This is now. Right now, all things are subject to Christ. Although, as he says, what? At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. We don't see it. Not with our eyes. We have limited vision. We, we can't see all that is happening and all that is transpiring. But that doesn't change the reality 
that all things are subject to Christ. All things serve his purpose. All things are bowing to his rule. What an amazing thing to reflect upon today, this week, this year. Perhaps you've been seeing the, those signs that are posted in a few folks' yards. 2020, Jesus. Okay. It's a good sign. I like it. It's an encouragement. But there's a point at which I want to go out and get my marker and cross out the 2020 and say, for all eternity, Jesus. Right? For all eternity, it's Jesus. He is the king because he is over all. Secondly, he is crowned, verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, reflect upon born in the stall. Who is this? Who is this? Right? Who is this so meek and mild? Who is this? Born of the Virgin Mary. Who is this? Tis the Lord. We sing. King of kings. Crowned. We see Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor. He is the king. Right now, the song of heaven is found for us in Revelation chapter 5. This is not the song to come. This is the song being sung even now. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We do not see Jesus as the infant. We see him crowned, ruling, reigning, triumphing, victorious. That's why the response of the four living creatures say amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. What are we doing tonight? We're worshipping Christ. Why? Why? Why would we worship Christ if he's not yet crowned? That would not make any sense. We worship Christ today upon the Lord's day. Why? Because it is the Lord's day. It's his day. Why? Because he is crowned with glory and honor. Jesus Christ is the king because he is crowned. Thirdly, because he is the source. Verse 11. Then I looked in... Whoops, wrong. I'm back in Revelation 5. That's not going to work out for me. Hebrews 2, 11. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Who is the one source? The one who has at his disposal as the king the right to command our sanctification. See, we talk about, don't we, we are being sanctified. Why are we being sanctified? Because the king, Jesus Christ, has commanded that we be sanctified. It all comes back to Christ. Everything comes back to Christ. That's what the author's point here is. Everything is under subjection to him. He is the one who is crowned because from him all things live and move and have their being. He is the source of not only our physical life, but he is the source of our spiritual life. And he is that source because he is the one to whom all things are subject to. Third, he is the priest. This is now what is taken up for us in the rest of this chapter. He is the priest. The author points out four things about this priesthood. One is that of his nature, of his being. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Partook of what things? What are the same things? Flesh and blood. To be our high priest, to fulfill the function of what the high priest needed to do, he had to have our flesh and blood. And I know we know all about, right, the virgin birth, about the incarnation, we know all about these things, and yet sometimes it seems like Every time we come to this celebration of the birth of Jesus, it gets lost. I don't mean the fact that his, he was flesh and blood. I don't mean the fact that he was man. But why? It was so that he could fulfill the responsibility of being the high priest. He is our prophet. He is our king. And he is our high priest. His nature. Yet, what what has the author of Hebrews told us about Christ? He is the exact imprint of God. So already we're keyed in. The the author is going to dig into this deeper. But even here, he's giving to us already the hint that no human priest could fulfill the responsibilities of what the high priest really needed to do. 
Being flesh and blood is part of it, but the one who took on flesh and blood is also the one who in the last chapter we are told is the exact imprint of God. He is the radiancy of God. That human and divine element of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He never could have fulfilled the requirements of the priesthood if he were not human. And he could not carry out the requirements of the priesthood if he were not divine. He is our high priest because of his nature. Secondly, what is his purpose? Look with me at verse 15. Actually, I'll go back to 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely, it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Three things, okay, under this, under this heading of the work that the high priest does. One, this high priest, of whom the author is speaking, Jesus Christ, who is king and who is prophet as well, is going to destroy, is going to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now listen to this. Okay, this is God's breathed out word. He will destroy the devil. Now the question I'm going to ask you is when? When is the devil destroyed? What does the text tell you? By his death. He will destroy the devil. By his death. See, it's by the resurrection that death is destroyed. But it is by his death that the devil is destroyed. The devil's grip. The devil's hold upon you and I. That's why the, the second work that accompanies this is found in, in the next phrase. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ has come to lead an exodus. Moses is the earlier picture. We get that tomorrow, next week, Lord willing. But Christ comes as the one who leads the greater exodus, the spiritual exodus. Not a slavery to a pharaoh in Egypt, but the slavery and bondage that we have to the devil through sin. Christ came and by his death, he destroyed the devil. 
See, remember in the story of the Exodus how this works, right? Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Actually, on the 10th plague, it's Pharaoh says, get over here. Get out of here. Leave. Go ahead. Leave. So Moses and the Israelites hurry up and leave. They get partway, and what happens? Pharaoh comes, right? Some exodus. Until we come to the story, the end of that section, where Pharaoh and all his hosts are drowned in the sea. Folks, let me tell you something. That after the death of Jesus Christ, there is no devil Pharaoh following after us. Because the devil to you and I has been destroyed. His bond upon us, his yoke of slavery has been broken. Why? Because for you and I, the devil is destroyed. See, that's why the New Testament keeps saying, why are you going back to sin? Why are you going back into slavery? There isn't even a slave master anymore. The devil has been destroyed. Oh, we know how the book of Revelation goes. We know how Thessalonians goes, that there is this this destruction and thrown into the lake of fire and so on. But you see, the author of Hebrews is speaking spiritually. For you and I, as believers in Christ, the devil's grip upon us is destroyed. And you can only destroy the devil's grip when the devil himself has been destroyed. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He doesn't say is going to destroy, will destroy someday. It is destroyed. The power of sin over you and I is destroyed. We're no longer in bondage to those sins. There is no, the devil made me do it for you and I. The devil cannot make you and I do one single solitary thing. This is the greatness. This is the supremacy of Jesus as the high priest. So one, to destroy the work of the devil. Two, to free those in bondage of sin. Three, for those who are in a covenantal relationship with him. See, that's where that that verse comes in about 16. For surely it's not angels he helps, but it's the offspring of Abraham. Now, why does the author bring that in? Well, one, he's speaking to who? Hebrews. He's speaking to Jewish people who understand what? They understand covenant theology. They understand Abraham, and they understand the covenant with Abraham. Here the author is saying, listen, This high priest has come to destroy the devil, to destroy his hold, his yoke, and bondage of slavery. For who? For those who are in a covenantal relationship with me. For those who by God's grace, by God's electing choice, 
by God's gift of faith planted in our hearts, have entered in to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Those who understand the significance of this cup is a new covenant in my blood. For those who are in that covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ, the yoke, the bondage of slavery, we have been set free from. And for us, in a spiritual sense, the devil is destroyed. This is the work, his purpose. Go with me to the next verse. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So here's where it becomes specific, right? Here's where we're we're finally told specifically, that Jesus Christ is the high priest. And what does a priest do? Okay, if you're, if you're Jewish you, and you think of the priesthood, what, what do you think of a priest doing? Well, that which is, is probably first and foremost in your mind is that the priest makes a sacrifice. That's what the priest does, particularly the high priest. You go back to the Old Testament and, and all that the high priest was able to do. In particular, there is one function of that priest on that day of atonement. It was only that high priest who could do that function. Notice, he doesn't just say in verse 17 that he has become a priest, but that he is the high priest in service to God, making the propitiation means to make atonement. It means to make reconciliation for. It's the idea of appeasing. Right? You you have a God who is holding you in judgment and you make a sacrifice to appease God for the sin that you have committed. All those Old Testament sacrifices are a picture of that which is to come. The sacrifice that this high priest, Jesus Christ, is going to make as the high priest. So his work is to be the priest, to offer a sacrifice, but the sacrifice is going to be of himself. He is not only priest, he is the sacrifice of the priest. He gives himself in order that that satisfaction of God's judgment, of our condemnation is made. See, why is Jesus Christ supreme in terms of our salvation? He is supreme because In terms of our salvation, he not only announces our salvation 
as the prophet, he not only rules over our salvation as the king, but he accomplishes our salvation as the high priest. Right? So in the Old Testament, you have some people who are prophets. You have some people who are priests. You have some people who are kings. Jesus Christ fulfills all the offices. He's prophet, priest, and king. In terms of, and that's what the focus of chapter 2, of our salvation. He accomplishes it all. He does it all. And the means by which he is going to accomplish all of this, verse 18, because he himself has suffered. It's his suffering. This one who is the exact imprint of God, this one who is the radiancy of God, this one who is supreme over the prophets, supreme over the angels, this one who announces salvation in and of himself. This one to whom all things are subjected. This one who wears the royal robes of the high priest. Is going to accomplish our salvation. By suffering. Suffering what? He's going to suffer our punishment. He's going to suffer our condemnation. He's going to suffer our judgment. This is the means by which salvation will be accomplished. Suffering. Not for himself. Not because of what he said. Because he antagonized the Romans and the Jewish leaders. He's suffering. For you and me. For my sin. For yours. Remember where we were this morning? For every wrong. Every evil deed. Every thought of sin, every word of sin, every act of sin, every will of sin, which is an affront to Almighty God that puts us under an eternal condemnation. He's there to suffer for us. Throughout this week, reflect upon that. Reflect upon the means by which your salvation was accomplished. And as you come to that table next Lord's Day morning, having reflected upon Christ's suffering for you, see, then we can gather at that table and we can celebrate. We can celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why? Because as the prophet, he has announced the truth that salvation is found in him and in him alone. We can celebrate that table because he is the king rules over our salvation. And that as the high priest, he has set us free. He has destroyed the devil. 
he has united with us in a covenant relationship so strong that it's referred to as he is the head and we are the body. That Christ so permeates our lives that there is no doubt of our salvation. We take the bread and we take the cup and by them we testify not of our goodness, not of that which we have done, but we testify to an accomplished salvation by our prophet, by our king, and by our priest. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for this word of reassurance in the midst of all that is happening and all that is going on that our salvation is assured by the one who is our prophet, priest, and king, even our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we join with the hymn writer. Praise the Savior now and ever. Lord, may our lives reflect that which we believe. In Christ's name, God's people say, Amen. We